Good to see you here at the last in our teaching series on the offence of the gospel. And uh, before we, we look at that, I just want to mention two new series that are starting next Sunday. Uh, you see it on page um, four of the Revival Times. The 2.30 service is going to be beginning next week a two-month series on moving in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, moving in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And uh, what that's designed to do is not just to teach you about the nine gifts of the Spirit, not just to tell you about faith, tell you about healing, tell you about prophecy, uh, tell you about tongues, but it's as much as we are open to the Holy Spirit, we want to demonstrate those gifts in the services, but also show you how you can move Uh, in the gifts of the Spirit. Maybe you're already moving in the gifts of the Spirit. Well, we want to help you and show you how you can move in greater levels of the gifts of the Spirit. And so that is designed to equip and enable you to practically move in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then at the five o'clock service, starting from next week, I'm doing a series, and I've called it boldly, I suppose, Jesus the Cell Leader. And what this will be next month and the month after, is we're going to do a leadership study on Jesus and how he ministered to his 12 apostles. We're going to look at how Jesus sought to reach the multitudes. He sought to reach the world, but how did Jesus seek to reach the multitudes? I mean, when you think about it, when Jesus died, there wasn't that many left, was there? I mean, how many people were there in the upper room when the Holy Spirit fell? Can you tell me? 120 people. Jesus, who had ministered to the multitudes, left church, an active church of 120 people. And when we look at Jesus during his ministry, we find that his greatest emphasis was on partnering with his 12 men, what I call his cell group. I know it's not quite a cell group, but it is in a sense, isn't it? 12 men. He was inputting these 12 men and investing into these 12 men because it was through those 12 men that he intended to reach the multitudes. In fact, as we see Jesus' life and ministry move on, as he gets closer to the cross, he spends less time with the multitudes and more time with his 12 men. And so during this next couple of months, we're going to look at Jesus. We're going to look at how he chose his men, how he ministered to them. And we're going to understand his strategy in training and releasing them. And this is going to be great, a great study anyway, but it's also going to be extremely helpful if you're in a cell group or if you're a cell leader, because you're going to see the best cell leader of all time and how he ministered to his 12 and equipped his 12 to go and reach multitudes. This is about mentoring, how Jesus mentored 12 men, not just for the sake of mentoring, but to release them to reach the world. So that starts next week. But today we're we're going to finish by looking at what I want to talk about redigging the wells of life, redigging the wells of life. So if you have your Bibles, if you could turn with me to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26 and verse 12. Genesis 26 and verse 12. We're talking about Isaac digging the wells. Genesis Genesis 26, 12. Then Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous, for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again 
the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had also called them. Also Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. This is a a fascinating study in, in the life of Isaac because we see him in a place of great prosperity, great personal comfort. We saw as I was reading that not only did he prosper, he became very prosperous. I mean, he sowed in in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the blessing of God was on him, and he was in a wonderful, prosperous place of bounty and personal satisfaction. Everything was going well with him until the envy of those around him came to him And uh, Abimelech says, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Interestingly enough, what does Isaac do? He goes away. Isaac was much mightier. And if he had chosen to, I suppose, he could have said, I'm not going away. You're going away. I'm mightier than you, that's correct. So you turn tail. This is the place I'm at. But this is the nature and character of Isaac, that he never tried to prosper or get the will of God done by his own effort. He never strove with man. He always left it to the Lord. We see this later, don't we? When If you keep reading after he dug the wells, what happens? He digs a well. People strive with him and say, get off that well. But I dug it. It was my father's. That's our well. What does he do? Fight over it? No, he moves on and digs another well And people strive over it. He moves on and digs another well. He lifts himself above the strife of man because he believes in God's blessing and promise for his life. It's God that he's trusting, not his own action. And this wonderful place that that he was at, suddenly he finds himself in a very dangerous position. He's got all these herds, we've just read about them, and all these servants and family, and now he's been told to leave and he has moved on into this land and where he is, there is absolutely no water. It's not as if he just uh, went from the nice end of town to the rough end of town. He was in a wilderness where lives were at stake. Now, this is interesting. I mentioned about Isaac and his character, and we see his character again and again and again. He had an incredible character. You know, he was the only one of the patriarchs that was happy with one wife. Also, we see that that he was a man that prayed. You see, sometimes you can look at Isaac's life and you think, well, it's not quite as exciting as Jacob's. Jacob's got a great story. Why? Because he's always fighting, getting into fights, he's, he's getting the blessing from his brother and he's making things happen and then he ends up at Laban and, and all this sort of thing, he's wrestling with God and, and you never see Isaac like that, wrestling and fighting and, and, and trying to m- manipulate things and I think that's because Isaac rose above that because he had such a pure trust of the Lord, of course he wasn't, he wasn't perfect, he, he made the mistake of his father and said that his wife was his sister when he was frightened. But if, if we look back, because I want you to see the character here in chapter 24 of verse 63. Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening and he lifted his eyes and looked and there the camels were coming. Rebekah came while he was in meditation. And, and th- this was his style. He meditated, he he prayed to the Lord. I mean, Jacob's a great character, but, but he tried. He, and, and Isaac had the promise, and Jacob had the promise, but Jacob tried in his own strength to get that promise. I mean, Jacob came in the garments and the hands of his own brother Esau to get the blessing, didn't he? Now, would Isaac have ever done that? I think when you look at Isaac, he, he wouldn't have done that. He wouldn't have said, right, how am I going to make... I've got God's promise. I'm going to make this work. I'm going to deceive my my own father. 
I'm going to come in the garments and the dress and the style of the very man that, that, that doesn't walk with God, that there's a worldly man. I'm going to dress and use the world in order to get the blessing. Do you know, do you know what I'm talking about? He did that. I mean, even when he came back after many years and he was frightened about what his brother uh, would, would do to him, frightened what Esau would do to him, he was very tricky, wasn't he? He split up the group and then he sent a little bit of the flocks and if that wasn't enough for his brother, the next wave of flocks would come and then the next wave of flocks. He was a struggler. I know he came through in the end and he walked with a limp and we spoke about that a couple of weeks ago. But he was always struggling, always trying to... But Isaac seems to me as a wonderful picture of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I mean, like I said, he could have just... When Abimelech said, you're more mightier than us, he could have just, you know, swatted him off like a fly. Well, go on, sling your hook. It's God that's blessed me. You you can leave. You can serve me. He didn't do it. He didn't strive. He went into this wilderness place and he trusted God. Why? Because he had a purity of faith in God's promise to him. That I'm not going to make this happen. I'm I'm not going to strive. I'm not going to use fleshly, earthly efforts to keep or to pursue the promise of God. I'm just going to go into the fields and I'm going to lift my hands to the Lord. I'm going to take it to the Lord and I'm not going to strive. It's interesting when you look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians and compare it with the flesh and those works of the flesh, the striving, the anger, the ambition, these things are are earthly, human efforts to uh, attain or to grasp something, or to get something. And then when you look at the fruit of the Spirit, there's no striving in the fruit of the Spirit. It's long-temperedness. It's patience. It's kindness and generosity. It's, in order to manifest the fruits of the Spirit, you have to have an extremely high trust in God, that God's in control, and that he's providential, he's providing, he's in control. You have to have extremely high levels of faith in God's promise in your life that you don't have to make it happen. You go to the one that will make it happen. You have to have extremely high levels of faith in prayer that prayer will get the work done. Because the opposite to these levels of faith and prayer is to work the works To be a Jacob, if you like, in his early years. God sorted him out. But God would never have to wrestle with Isaac all night. Isaac was already there. As soon as God jumped on Isaac, he'd say, I submit. I've already submitted. You don't need to wrestle me. I I, I submit. I'm here for you. And so we we see this this picture of, of a man believing God. And whatever came his way, he wasn't perfect, but he'd believe God. I mean to dig the well and have it taken from you. I mean, can you imagine in your life to gain some sort of success or achievement and someone snatches it from you and says, it's mine, what would you do? I'd say, no, it's mine. Not only was it his, it was his father's. Abraham had dug these things. And yet he just believed God. He thought, no, if I can, I know he wasn't New Testament believer, he was like, no, the fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is patience, faith the fruit of the Spirit. I'm just going to believe God. I mean, no wonder he was the the sort of boy that would allow himself to be sacrificed on the mountain, wasn't he? I mean, the great test of Abraham perhaps was also the great test of Isaac. I don't know, but perhaps it was. Because many people think that when Isaac went on that mountain with his father to be sacrificed, that he was actually uh, quite a strong young man maybe more physically stronger than his father at that time. That's what people think. Well, some little kid that didn't know what was going on. And, and he was a joint believer with Abraham. When Abraham said to him, you know, God will provide a sacrifice, my son, he trusted his dad. He trusted his, the faith of his father. And so Isaac was the sort of person that said, you know, when he was bound, what, did, did Abraham bound him because Isaac was resisting. Do you think Abraham bound Isaac because he was resisting? No, look at the nature of him. He wasn't resisting. He was saying, if this is the will of the Father, 
that I'm prepared to sacrifice. And if that's what he was like as a young man, no wonder he didn't strive when he was told to leave. No wonder when he came into this desert area and began to dig wells, he didn't strive. And in the end, without striving, he got his blessing. And so here he is in the valley. He's parched, desolate. It's uninhabited. It's unfruitful. Isaac's not just concerned about his own life. What about his family around him? What about the servants? What about the flocks? This is a man of responsibility. And he's come into a valley which, which, has, which has no water. It's a dead valley. And if they don't find water soon, they're going to die as well. So how did Isaac go about finding the wells of life? I think in this picture, we can, we can use this as a reference to not only our own personal lives, but also the state of the church. Because when you look at some individual believer's life, and maybe it's you today, and you're in a desert land, a spiritual desert land, I mean, you're all over the place perhaps, and you're, you're, you're in, a, in a barren place with God, you're in a desolate spiritual place, an unfruitful place, a dangerous place to be spiritually. How are you going to draw water when there's no wells around? And what about the state of the church today? And, and the hope of this nation is a spirit-filled church. If we're not drawing from the wells of salvation, if we're not having the Holy Spirit welling up from our innermost being and flowing out of us like rivers, then the nation's not going to be able to drink. The church itself, if you like, needs to dig. And we often use the phrase, don't we? Digging the wells of revival. You ever heard that phrase? At KT, sometimes we've used the phrase, digging the wells of revival. We've sometimes said, you know, re-digging the wells of George Jeffries. Have you heard that over the years? You have, haven't you? We say, you know, we've got a birthright, we've got an inheritance, and, we, we, and the glory of the latter house will be greater than that of the former, a promise, prof, prophecy over KT. Not just the glory of the latter house will be great, with no reference to the past, but that key prophecy over our church is the glory of the latter house will be greater than the former's. There's a link. And we understand that we don't dismiss the former, but in fact we go back and learn and dig the wells of the former because we know that our future, in some sense, also depends on the blessings of, of the past. We don't dismiss the past. Well, this is the problem today in so many individuals' lives, but also in the ministry of the church, that we are forgetting the past or the wells that were dug in history before. And so when an individual Christian today looks at their life and sees very little of God, very little of God's presence, very little of, God, of spirituality, when prayer levels, individual prayer levels are, are almost zero, when experiences and yearnings and longings for God and longings for his spirit and longings for internal change and longings for holiness and, and hatred of sin. When was the last time you couldn't sleep because of your sin? I'm not talking about gross sin. I mean that you lie in there at night and you're thinking, God, 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 I'm struggling. I'm the unworthiness, the the sin that's inside me, the attitudes. God, I need your spirit to deliver me from myself. But we don't yearn often like that. We're too busy telling each other, you're all right in Jesus' name. You're the head, you're not the tail. You're brilliant, you're great, you're wonderful. You look at, I don't mean to be critical, but you look at all the, 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 the amount of posts on Facebook that Christians are going up. They're always, you're all right, I'm all right. You're blessed, you're great. I understand that the beginning of the faith, the most important thing is to know that you are unconditionally accepted by God. I understand that. But hey, that's the milk. 
That's the milk to know that you're unconditionally accepted for God forever. Okay, let's move on and let's see, see what's going on in our lives today. Let, let's see the manifestation of God in our lives. On that foundation of knowing that we are accepted and loved eternally, let's begin to mature, let's begin to grow, or it'll end up like the Corinthians all over again. They knew they were saved, those Corinthians. They knew it. The Galatians weren't so sure. They were having a crisis of assurance but there wasn't a crisis of assurance in the Corinthian church, was there? A crisis of assurance? They seemed to be the most confident lot on the face of the earth. Going around, showing off their gifts, showing what God could do with them. Talking about the best preachers. I follow Paul. Paul's all right. But have you ever seen Apollo minister in the Holy Ghost? Oh, I'm of Peter. I'm... And they were going around and, they, and they, did, they, they knew nothing of love. They knew nothing of service. They knew nothing of the convicting work of the Spirit in their life. They knew nothing of the misery of being a Christian. You say, what are you talking about? Misery. Sometimes misery is a wonderful thing. When God's got his hand on you pinned to the ground and you're weeping over your own soul and you're weeping over others and you're weeping over a nation and you're miserable but you wake up in the morning cleansed and you can't sleep at night because something's bubbling in you. The state of your own life, the state of the nation and it's awkward and it's difficult and you fall asleep for a few minutes but then you wake again and something's on your mind, something's not right in your life, something's not right. These types of experience are hardly known in these days. We're too busy, I'm alright, you're alright, God's alright, we're all alright. We're not. We're not in that place of Abimelech. We're not in there, that comfort zone. Comfort zone. I mean, if, 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 if the church of today had been told by Abimelech, move on, we'd say, no way, you move on, Jack. You get, you go. Go on, you go. On your bike. We're victorious in Jesus' name. We're prosperous in Jesus' name. We're triumphant in Jesus' name. Look at all the things that we have. We're not going anywhere. But Isaac went into a very precarious situation. It was desperate times. And what did he do in those desperate times? Did he start looking from scratch for some new water, a new water? Did he bring in the water diviners? You know the water diviners that can come and, and, they, and, and you say, is there water on my land? And they have techniques and abilities uh, to find new wells or, 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 or new places. No, he didn't do that. What did he do? He said, someone's been here before. My father has been here before. And my father did a work before. And I remember what my father did. I remember the places that he went, the names that he gave to them. And I remember he dug the work he did. Oh, he worked hard. He, he founded and pioneered these wells. And one after other, these wells of living, running water came. And we began to drink and life was, was brought up for the flocks and the family. We had running water. Uh, we could look after our flocks. We could begin to grow things. We, we, we had a, a, a life-giving water and wells were, were, were there. He remembered that. But of course, there was a problem here, wasn't there? You see, there was water, but the problem was the wells had been stopped up, hadn't they? The Philistines had got in there and they had filled the wells up with rubbish. I mean, he knew where the places, the locations of the historical wells were. He understood his history. He knew his history. He'd not forgotten his history, where the bubbling water was. He knew where it was. He was a student of history. And, uh, and they could go to them. But then the water was there, but not accessible. It was invisible to them because it had been filled up with junk. You know, I put it to you today that sometimes as individuals, let's do individuals, we're looking for life in all the wrong places. I mean, even as Christians, we're looking for life, for God's power, and God's spirit in all the wrong places. 
Sometimes you can go onto sort of Christian websites and Christian bookshops. They're nothing more than self-help books with Jesus in it. Not Jesus helping it. Self-help books. Psychology books. This, that and the other. New, new ideas. New breakthroughs, so-called new revelations that are going to come and change your life and cause you to get through. But many of these new ways, new conferences on new doctrines and new emphases, and the idea being that it will meet your need, it will change your life. But many of these things, there's, there's no sacrifice. Tell you what, if it's not worth sacrificing for, it's not worth it. There's something beautiful about sacrifice and gaining something in sacrifice. Now, this is often why revivals come and go, why moves of God come and go, because you get a pioneering group of people that have dug a well of revival and they paid the price and the sacrifice on their knees before God. They paid the sacrifice. They waited on the Lord, they're believing God, they're trusting God, they're praying God, and God is working on them and preparing them from when he pours out his spirit. And when the spirit comes, they're ready. They're ready, they've been up in their upper room. They haven't been going around, shopping, this, that and the other. They've been in preparation. Wait, in tarry in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power. Not just turn up one day when you feel like it and you'll get the power. Tarry, wait. There's only 120 of them left. Doesn't seem much, as I said earlier. The greatest preacher that ever lived left a church of 120. But they were waiting. And that waiting, God wasn't saying, oh, you just get on. God was working in their hearts during that period. He was working his work in their hearts. Because I tell you, if God pours out his power and we're not ready to handle it, it will spoil, we'll spoil the whole thing. You know, sometimes when you hear people crying out for revival and you go, not yet, Lord. Please change us first so that when you pour out this precious anointing, it'll be carried by precious vessels. Precious vessels. And they were waiting and, and, and being prepared. And often in the history of revivals, what happens is the first generation, of they'd been in the upper room. They didn't just turn up in Pent on the day of Pentecost. They'd been in the upper room. They knew what it was to long and hunger for something of God. And it was precious to them. And the pioneer generation, they bring it in. But you look at many revivals, many moves of God, and you find the second and third generation that come out of it, the kids of them, they take it all for granted. They take the big churches for granted. They take the move for granted. By, before Wesley had died, he was lamenting the state of many Methodists because they had lost their fire. Well, not the early pioneers, but the ones that had come after. They were used to walking into a full church. They, they were used to, to an atmosphere. They hadn't been in the upper room. They, they, they were born into the glory and had not been taught or were not open to paying the price to take that thing to the next level. Every generation is called to wait in the upper room. And every generation is called to receive an empowering of the Holy Spirit for what God has called them to do. And so people are trying to discover new wells. I mean, people are saying, theologians and pastors are saying, oh, you can't preach the old truths to a modern generation. And we have to take a New Testament, Old Testament period and recognize that man has changed since those times. We don't, humankind today... Western Britain today, you can't talk to them about casting out demons. They laugh at you. We've moved on. We understand now that those demons, it's called an epileptic fit and you can get medicine for it. You don't talk about demons. You don't talk about the wrath of God. God, God just loves everybody indiscriminately. There's no wrath. There's no anger. There's no right. There's no wrong. There's no wall of de demarcation. 
between what is holy and what is vile, what is right and what is wrong. No, you're all right, whatever, God loves you, whatever, don't worry about it, it's all fine. It'll all come out in the wash later. And they think that man has changed, and they talk as if God has changed. That the God of the New Testament has adapted himself and his truths for the glorious modern generation that we are. It's, it's, it's like, it's like a, an, an evolutionary theory gone wild. It's like man is changing and growing and evol evolving in his understanding, in his science, in his morality, and, uh, and this old-style gospel preaching of the past is no longer relevant. After all, look at the churches. They're empty. And they blame it on the old style. They're saying, we need to dig new wells, not the old wells. The old wells, they say, don't have any water anymore to draw from. We need new wells, new methods, new doctrines, new teachings. Now, I'm, I'm all for putting things in a context for today. But this is totally inconsistent with what the Bible says. Mankind has not changed. Human beings are exactly the same by nature today as they were back in Isaac and Abraham's day. As, as they were back in Cain and Abel's day. There's no, nothing, there's no difference Human beings are doing exactly what they were doing 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. They're exactly the same sorts of sins, isn't it? In a modern way, but it's sexual sins, it's violence, it's, it's the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh are as manifest today as they were thousands of years ago. Man is fallen. Just because we have a different style of clothes does not mean we've changed. Just because we've discovered a little bit more of God's creation does not make us a superior being to the people in the Bible days. On the contrary, we should be even more aware of who God is. The more we discover creation, the more the Creator speaks. The more we discover science and creation, the greater the judgment, the wrath of God is revealed... If it was revealed on them that didn't even know the world, they thought the world was flat, maybe, you know what I'm saying? If the wrath of God was revealed against all those that thought the earth was flat, what do you think about those that can explore the outer edges of the universe? We're exactly the same. God has not changed, has he? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The gospel is not something new in the New Testament. The gospel was there in the Old Testament. Right there in the fall, the gospel was there. When condemnation came to Adam and Eve, it was said that he will bruise your heel, but you will crush his head. Right there, the crimson thread of the gospel is there in Genesis. Abraham believed the gospel. Isaac believed the gospel. Yes, there was a, a day of, of ultimate revelation, if you like, when Jesus returned, but... Man is just the same. God is just the same. I remember one uh, theologian, Pentecostal theologian, and I was sitting in his lecture, and he was speaking about George Jeffries, the founder of Kensington Temple and the founder of the Elim Pentecostal movement, uh, a great evangelist with signs and wonders accompanying. And, and this is what he said. I, I, I can hardly believe he said it. But he said... Of course, if George Jeffries was ministering today, he would not have the crowds that he had then. He would not have the impact that he had. This is a Pentecostal theologian from our own movement. He would not have the crowds he had. He would, he, he, he would not have the impact he had. Why? Because things have changed since George Jeffries' day. In those days, this man said, nobody had any TV. The radio was relatively new. There was a culture of going places. And so when somebody put on an evangelistic campaign, in those days the culture was to go to these things. And of course, medicine was still very much in its infancy in George Jeffrey's day compared to today. So the fact that somebody was... 
promising to pray for those that were sick was extremely appealing when there was no national health service. Extremely appealing when there was no breakthrough in medicine in many of these areas. And so the appeal, but now, now we have NHS, and if you can afford it, Bupa. We have medical breakthroughs. We've changed. This old style evangelism wouldn't work today. And you know what he said? He said if George Jeffries was around today, he would be better to do more incarnational ministry. He, he, should, he should meet social needs. He should start creches for the local thing. And I thought to myself, there's nothing with meeting social needs. There's nothing with starting creches for that. But that's secondary. It's not primary. And so this man was saying that the old well had lost its water. There's no point trying to dig that well because you won't find any water in it because man has changed and God has changed. I'm telling you, all that is, all that is is a manifestation of how weak and powerless and an experience of God that man had. I wouldn't, it wouldn't matter to me if he had a weak, if he was weak and powerless, if he just admitted that he was weak and powerless, we'd be on the road to strength and victory. But he wasn't there going, he was weak and powerless, but he wasn't saying, God, but we're weak. God, but we're powerless. He wasn't doing that. On the contrary, he was saying we need to find another well. We need to do it in a different way. How about you when you're facing your, your life, your Christian life? your business life, the circumstances and obstacles that you face, lost loved ones, how do you seek to meet that need? Where do you get the life from? Where do you get the spirit from? Where do you get the wells without which everything's going to remain dead and dry? How do you dig? Are you just hoping? Or are you just psych psychologically, I'm all right, God's all right, keep confessing it? Or are you just dismissing the things in your, in, in your life that aren't fit for what God has called you to? Just dismiss it, it doesn't matter. Just dismiss it, it doesn't matter. God's going to do it a different way. God's a, God's, God's a God of grace and mercy. He doesn't mind. He'll fill us with the Spirit. We don't have to tarry. We don't have to believe, we don't have to desire, we don't have to hunger, we don't have to thirst. It'll come anyway. This is, this is the 20th century. This is instant coffee and instant food and instant spiritual gratification. But Isaac understood that in this time of danger, he had to go back to the proven wells. He knew they were there. And so what, what did he do? He began to go back to history where water had been discovered before, and he, he began to dig those wells, because the Philistines had tampered with those wells. You say, what do you mean? They'd filled it with rubbish. What does that mean for us today? It means this. The Philistines have tampered with the message of the gospel, and they've tampered with the method of evangelism. They've tampered with the message, and they've changed the message to some liberal, weak, powerless gospel that apologizes for God and put man at its center instead of God at its center. It's a man-centered gospel. Men and women are not interested in a man-centered gospel. There's enough man-centered religion out there. Men and women want a God-centered message. The Philistines have tampered with the message and they tampered with the method. The method's the same. The message is the same. Preach the gospel. Speak the gospel. It's when the gospel is released that the power comes. And Isaac went and he started to get rid of that rubbish. Do you know what God's wanting? He's wanting us to get rid of the rubbish that's blocking the well. In our own lives first. He says, I put a well deep within your soul. Come to me all that thirst. And out of your kolos, the Greek word is, innermost being will flow rivers of living water out of your innermost being. And that innermost being, it's a hollow core. It's a well deep within your soul. And God has put a well deep within you. Living water. What's living water? It's running water. 
I got a big goldfish bowl a few weeks ago. I thought, I thought I'd have some fish. You know, I, th- I think I'm going through, I don't know if it's midlife, I'm 45, I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm growing cactus from scratch. Planted my first plants, and I got a big goldfish bowl. I don't know what that means. Big goldfish bowl. Put two, like, fish in it. And one of the things it says is make sure you, in that filter the water is moving. Because it's not about the bubbles bubbling up, but just make sure that the, the surface of the water is breaking. So I've got this like filter thing in, and the surface of the water is moving, it's moving, it's moving. Why? Because if the surface of the water isn't moving, then that will lose its oxygen, and the fish will die. It has to be, if I can use the phrase, living water for the fish to live. And living, moving water. And God has sunk a well deep inside you. And could it be that, like the Philistines, we've got to clean out a bit of the Philistine in our own hearts. A bit of the rubbish that's in there. Get a bit of digging. Get a, before the Lord. Perhaps in the middle of the night, before the Lord, and cry out and say, first thing we've got to do is say, Holy Spirit, show me. Show me. Lord, will you come and show me? Will you come and show me? Will, I want to know how I'm really doing. I want to know. I, I, it's not enough just to be at the same temperature as everybody else around you. You say, oh, I'm hot for God. Is that because everybody else is at the temperature of three degrees centigrade? And you're four degrees centigrade? Or Celsius, and you're hot for God? We take our temperature from the freezing cold. Freezing cold. This nation is freezing cold spiritually. And the fact that maybe we're not ice, we think we're boiling. We have to go to the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, I, I don't know what the... De- I don't know, what is it like to be hot for God? What is it like to be on fire? I'm on fire. You're on fire, we're all on fire. Why? Because if you're not on fire, you're nobody. Well, then we all must be on fire because we're a somebody in Jesus' name. We're all on fire. I want to know, what is it to be really like on fire? I mean, really on fire. God, show me. Show me the lukewarmness. Show me the sin. Show me. Help me. I can't do it myself. I can't see it myself. I can't discern it myself. God, show me, work in me, get deep inside me. It has to be a work of the Spirit. It can't be a work of the flesh. It's not fleshly repentance. It's, it, it's, it's, it's got to be a work of the Spirit. It can't be a pretend work. It can't be a counterfeit work. We've all been there where we've tried to, tried to do the old Jacob. Try, we got the promises, but we put on the clothes of our brother Esau... And we use worldly measures to get spiritual results without the effect of the Spirit in our life. We're finished. But with the effect of the Spirit in our life, with the effect, with the working, we can grow and develop. Oh, hallelujah. We think we know the Holy Spirit. We haven't even begun. We think we're Pentecostals. We think we're charismatics. We think we're full. We think we're mighty. We think we're triumphant. We think we're full of faith. We're like Samson. It's not that the Holy Spirit hasn't left us. It'll always be with us. But where's the power of the gospel in our lives? No, I know that God is working. Can you understand? I'm trying to take us higher. I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to get our eyes higher. Because the problem today is that, is that we're, we have accepted where we are. You know, one of the beautiful things about longing for revival is it's very healthy. I've come to the conclusion that if I begin to long for revival, even if it doesn't come in my life, it's the greatest thing that could happen to me. Because when you begin to long for revival... Long for God to move in your life and in the nation. Things begin to happen. I mean, we talk about the message of the awakening that's going to come. The midnight cry and things. That message Dr. Kendall has preached, 
I believe. But it's causing an incredible internal destabilization of my spiritual life. I'll say that again. The belief that God wants to pour out an end time revival, the belief that it could happen in our time, the belief that God wants to fit us for this time and that we are to prepare for this time and believe that it can happen and not just think it's going to be church as usual and, and that we're just going to grow here and there, but, but God wants to do something. The belief in that causes a deep internal destabilization. I said to my wife, I said, you know what, Nicolad, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to end up walking in revival or end up in a mental hospital. That's how I feel sometimes when I'm wrestling with these things. When these things are deep and heavy on me in the night. And it's deep and heavy on me. And I feel this internal destabilization. Things that were comfortable. Things that were, you know, we'll move on, we'll grow, we'll plant churches, we'll, you know, we'll just do it. And then suddenly a destabilization is taking place. And you think, is this healthy? Am I going crazy? Or is God taking out the rubbish of the Philistines? Surely there's a lot more work to be done in our lives. Surely, surely there's a lot that God wants to do. And, and you, you, you say, well, what does it mean to dig the old wells? You just have to look at the history of the church. Right from the beginning, it's like the ebb and flow of the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. Times of great barrenness in church history, followed by times of great blessing. I mean, I recommend to you, it's only three pounds, I recommend to you my book that I wrote 12 years or so ago on Land of Hope and Glory, British Revivals Through the Ages. It's not a deep book, looking at all the revivals. The reason I wrote this book was because when you wanted to find out about a revival at the time, it's different now, many have written good books, but when you wanted to find out about revival, you had to get these big, thick books and dig, 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 dig to try and find the jewels because they were written in such old-fashioned ways. Or you got some flimsy little book that hardly even touched it. And I thought, wouldn't it be good just to look through some of the revivals through the ages, starting in the Middle Ages, right through, starting to when the gospel first came to it, and just give snapshots, just to whet people's appetites. And as you go through, you see that the state of Britain today is basically the same that it's been before. And that we have been in darker places than this. Or maybe we haven't, but dark places. And this is what God does. God revives his church. And the greatest thing that can happen to our lives is to seek God for revival. Because that will change us. I mean, can you imagine the book of Acts without Pentecost? I was trying to imagine earlier on today, the book of Acts without Pentecost. And what it would be like. I know it's a silly thing. But I was trying to think. What would Acts be like without revival? I imagine they're, they're praying in the upper room. and Well maybe they're not praying in the upper room. But they're in the upper room. They say oh forget this. Let's go out. We've done this before. And maybe they go out in the name of Jesus. Like they did before when they were following him. And maybe the power of the name of Jesus has an effect. I mean if, if, if a non-Christian. If the seven sons of Sceva. You know what I'm saying who aren't saved, can use the name of Jesus to a certain degree, only a certain degree, little demons. And then when they hit a bigger demon, there's not authority there. Maybe they'd have gone out. Maybe they'd have made a few disciples. Maybe they'd have, maybe they'd done a bit. But do you think it, the book of Acts would be anything? You th can you think of all the things that wouldn't have happened in the book of Acts? When they prayed that time for boldness, that wouldn't have happened, would it? They'd just have to struggled on. Would Stephen's face have shone? Would, would, would they be taking cloths off Paul to heal the sick? You know what I'm saying? What, what would it, it would have been thump, wouldn't it? Might have made a few decisions, thump. It would be low level. The book of Acts without Pentecost. 
We need another Pentecost. Because what is revival? Revival is simply a repeat of the book of Acts. Not exactly, but, you know, the spirit of the book. Revival is simply Pentecost again. Pentecost again. And when you see in church history, various places, it's just Pentecost again. Pentecost again. Pentecost again. You know, we sing that song. We need another Pentecost. Send the fire again. I want to encourage you as I finish today. I can't promise that revival will come this day or that day. That's the sovereign work of the Lord. I can't promise. I don't know when revival is going to come. And I can't promise that. We can hope. But what I can say to you is that if you begin to seek God for Pentecost, if you begin to seek God for revival, you will, will, the process inside you will be an internal destabilization where God will destable, destabilize the comfort he will destabilize the lukewarmness and he'll begin to work and you will become a healthy Christian. A healthy Christian. So what if I seek God for a revival in my life and seek God for an outpouring on the nation and it doesn't happen in my life? You'll be a healthy Christian. A healthy Christian. And not only that, if God does send it in our lifetime, you'll be able to carry it. You'll be grounded in the fruit of the Spirit. You'll be like Isaac. You'll be unshaken by anything. Why? Because you know you're God. You know the promise, and you know that it's the Spirit that will bring the promise, and you just rest on that. You dig whatever wells need to. If anybody wants to deal with you according to the flesh, you will deal with them according to the Spirit. You'll be on another wavelength. You'll be at another level. You'll be walking in the fruit and the flesh can't touch you. See, the flesh always tries to get you out of the fruit. But when you're truly walking in the fruit, you have to believe God. Because kindness, patience, generosity, these things without God don't work. But with God they do. Father, as we finish this series on the gospel... Lord, we understand that we need your Holy Spirit to empower us and change us. And Lord, we thank you for everything that you're doing. We don't dismiss what you're doing and the great things that you're doing. It's just we want more. And you want us to want more. Lord, we're splashing around in the shallows. And we thank you for that. But there are depths in the ocean of your spirit that you want to take us to. Help us to launch out into the deep because in the deep there is the big miraculous catch. Not in the shallows or the tiddlers but in the deep. The deeper we are in you the greater the size of the fish in the catch. Bless us we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.